0: Most of the storage papers clearly occur locally, or at least near the San Diego area. And while it's likely that today's statement may be consistent with that pattern, an actual location is never really revealed. Because I found it within a bunch of documents that all describe local events, I'm forced to assume it at least occurred close by. And after you hear this strange account of events, I'm guessing you'll agree with me that it's par for course for Southern California. Statement of Cassandra Lamont, July 17, 1998 James and I had just finished college, and we had been discussing the long-term possibilities of our relationship. I had a feeling a proposal was on the way soon, and it was a time where everything seemed to be going right. We both had job offers in the city we wanted to be in, so all there was left to do was pack up and move and to visit James's parents before we left, of course. We referred to them as parents, even though they were actually his grandparents. The story James told me was his mother had him at a really young age, and she knew she had a few things to sort out before playing the role of mother, but they ended up raising him entirely. I could easily see them becoming my in-laws, and we had a very special bond. They didn't just feel like overbearing and protective parents of men I'd dated in the past, even though the seriousness of those relationships could never compare. They had an easygoing but caring approach to their relationship with James and me, and I always felt welcome around them. I was really looking forward to seeing them again. Tom and Eileen were their names, and they had just bought their dream retirement home right before our semester finals began. James was excited to see the place and had acquired the address, and it actually ended up being closer to us than the home where he grew up. We decided to head up the coast on a Friday afternoon so we could be there by sundown, and hopefully for supper. The drive was beautiful, with winding roads that placed you into thick trees with a canopy that let in very little light. And then you'd go around a bend in the road, and you'd see the ocean to the left. We witnessed a dazzling sunset before our final turn inland away from the coast. It was difficult to tell if it was getting dark out, or if the trees absorbed most of the remaining sunlight when we drove into a dense fog bank. I had never seen fog that thick before. At times, it pulsated with a faint violet hue. Noiseless, but with a rhythm just slightly slower than my heartbeat, which gave the impression that it was somehow alive. Visibility was so low that we had to slow down to what seemed like a walking pace for quite some time. This, of course, made the journey that much longer, and somewhere along the way, we lost cell phone reception. When we arrived at his parents' place, we could barely make out the location of the house by the light coming through the windows, and we really didn't appreciate what the outside of the house appeared like at night. We parked our car and got out to stretch our legs. We breathed in the air, which smelled like pine trees with a hint of campfire smell that must have been burning in the distance. As we approached the porch, a dim orange light grew more vibrant as we got closer. When we knocked on the door, we became concerned initially because no one answered. After several attempts, James thought it would be best to walk around to the back of the house to see if there were any signs of them. As we approached the back of the house, we could see a large sliding glass door leading inside from a wooden deck. So we climbed the stairs that led to it. When we reached the top of the stairs, we were astonished to see Tom and Eileen standing shoulder to shoulder at the sliding glass door. Their eyes were open and they resembled statues, motionless and expressionless. But they were watching our every move. James managed to whisper a baffled, what the hell? before waving his hand from side to side in front of their faces to elicit some kind of a response from them. Tom and Eileen slowly turned their heads to look at one another, almost in unison, and then back toward us before Eileen reached down to unlock the sliding door and open it. Still, they said nothing. James and I were confused and responded similarly before he asked them if they were all right. Tom said, Of course we are. In a very monotone way, before Eileen immediately spoke as if she was finishing his thought by saying, You just surprised us, that's all. Their enunciation was weak, as if they had both just come out of sedation. James started to tell them we had been knocking at the front door when they both turned around and walked further into the home. Failing to address James's comment, the sliding doorway left open behind them as an invitation to follow. I felt extremely uneasy at that moment. The closest thing I can liken it to would be a fight-or-flight response. Still, James followed them inside and I decided to follow his lead. The inside of the home was unexpected. The interior appeared to be lived in, but I didn't recognize any of the furniture or decorations from their previous home. I saw cobwebs in the corner of the ceiling, and I placed my hands on one of the counters in the kitchen, a thick layer of dust clinging to my skin. Not only was a dirty house out of character for Tom and Eileen, but a gaze around the room told me no one had even touched anything in the house in a very long time, as the dust layer was undisturbed. But I shrugged it off, doing a good enough job convincing myself that they probably just didn't have enough time yet to get their home in order. They were in their 60s, after all, and likely were limited to the amount of physical activity they could do each day. When James asked if anyone was hungry, they said they already ate supper and there were no leftovers. It was only 6.30pm. And James made a joke about them turning into those people who go to the all-you-can-eat buffets around 4.30 every day," which didn't receive much of a response. I recalled they once had a somewhat cheesy sense of humor, with Tom always having a handful of new dad jokes to try out on me. James seemed to feel comfortable making a joke like that with them, but I wouldn't dare, given the odd behavior they were displaying. I wasn't very hungry anyways. In fact, I was feeling nauseous after eating a cheap microwavable burrito from one of the gas stations off the highway that afternoon. We decided to retrieve our bags from our car, and Eileen showed us to a room we could use for the night. Before she left the room to us, she forced an awkward smile that lingered too long, and informed us she and Tom had experienced a very long and exhausting day, and they were going to retire to their bedroom for the night. Then she closed the door and we could hear her footsteps receding. But they sounded as if they were headed back to the living room instead of another bedroom. James and I remained in the room they provided for us that evening and quietly discussed their peculiar behavior before falling asleep that night. One of the things we noticed was how noisy the wood floors were in the home. And in the morning, we discussed how neither of us recalled hearing his parents walk by our door to go to their own room before we fell asleep. The next morning, I awoke to find myself alone in our room. James left a note on my nightstand that said, Went for coffee. I recalled his parents not having a coffee maker in their previous home, and I've been addicted to caffeine since late high school. It was just the little things like that gesture that allowed me to know James was a keeper. He regularly went out of his way to do things that I appreciate. These aren't grand gestures, but they're thoughtful and consistent and just a small part of James's personality that had me longing for a proposal. I took a quick shower and got dressed, then decided I'd head out into the living room to say hello to his parents. To my surprise, I found myself alone in the house, or at least I believed I was alone. His parents' bedroom door was closed, and I didn't hear any movement. It was after 10 a.m., and I knew they were early risers, so I figured they had perhaps gone with James to pick up coffee. I went to our bedroom to retrieve my laptop, figuring I'd browse my newsfeed before they returned when I heard a knock at the door. Through the glass, I could see the blurred features of a middle-aged woman before I opened the door and greeted her. Hello, the woman said rather cheerfully. I hope I'm not visiting too early. She had in her hands a casserole dish with a sticky note on the top with baking instructions. I said, wow, thank you. Unfortunately, I'm not sure where everyone else is at the moment, but they should be back soon. The woman introduced herself, saying, I'm Claire from down the road. I know you arrived last night, but we didn't want to bother you. My husband and I have been the only residents on this old road for a couple of years now, so it's exciting to have someone finally moving in. We didn't realize the house was even sold. When did you move in? She seemed incredibly friendly, but she seemed a bit confused after I said, Oh, we're just visiting my boyfriend's parents who recently moved in, Tom and Eileen, but you've probably already met them. Claire grew a scowl on her face and said, No. Um, you're the first people we've seen in quite a long time. You see, we have a security camera overlooking our driveway, and we always get a little text notification whenever a car comes in the driveway. Most of the time if a car passes on the road, the darn thing is so sensitive, we're alerted when that happens too. You've been the only car to go by in months. I faked a casual laugh and thanked her for the food, then told her I'd return the dish when we were finished with it. She said she had only prepared enough food for two, and that she would return later with more food so everyone could have a full belly before bedtime. I couldn't help but feel like she was using the friendly neighbor routine to be nosy and gather info, but I couldn't say which she prioritized, and I was honestly very thankful for the food. After I closed the door, I went to the kitchen window and watched her walk away. She took a moment to glance back at the house and had a confused look on her face before turning and leaving. It was dark in the house, so I was confident she couldn't see me observing from near the window. As I picked up my cell phone to call James, I heard his car pull up in the gravel driveway. He carried with him two scones and a large black coffee for me. He said he saw someone walking away from the house and i explained the odd conversation that had just occurred before asking where his parents were he told me he hadn't seen them that morning when i informed him that i hadn't seen or heard them either this caused him to be concerned and he decided to knock on their bedroom door i waited anxiously down the hall near our bedroom's entrance he knocked and called out but no one answered I don't know why my attention was drawn to it at the moment, but through the doorway to our bedroom, I could see out the window to the backyard, and I noticed an old shed that was overgrown and dilapidated. Turning my attention back to James, he had slowly opened the door and peered inside his parents' bedroom. He looked at me and said, They're not in here. He recalled they'd been going on daily morning walks in their retirement. It was new for them just before he moved out, and he just figured that's what happened. So we decided to just wait and distract ourselves by playing a card game. The hours passed and we began to worry. James tried making some phone calls, but the reception wasn't allowing him to. There was also no landline service. Just after sunset, we were getting ready to leave the house to go looking for them. When we opened the front door to leave, they were there standing in the dark. Tom and Elaine stood on the porch outside the home, standing still like we'd seen them the previous evening. James switched on the porch light to get a better view of them. He said, My God, where have you been? We've been trying to figure out where you were since this morning. Tom and Elaine looked at one another synchronously, and then back at us before Tom said, We were feeling like going for a walk followed by Elaine finishing his sentence. And we just got lost along the way. We all stood in awkward silence for a moment. And when James opened his mouth to ask another question, Tom and Elaine began walking through the door and bumped between us to get inside the house. This seemed odd and rude, but they didn't say anything as they passed and continued walking until they reached the rear sliding door. And there they stood, side by side, with their backs facing us, looking out over their backyard. I tried interacting with them and let them know about the neighbor, Claire, who had brought a casserole for us to eat, then offered to throw it in the oven. Tom said, Oh, we're not hungry, dear, immediately followed by Eileen, saying, But go ahead and heat it up for yourselves. James and I looked at one another, confused by their behavior. I decided I would put the casserole in the oven and set a timer for 30 minutes, then motioned for James to follow me into our room. We discussed how odd his parents' behavior had been and what could potentially be going on with them. They didn't seem to present with symptoms of dementia, and we couldn't identify anything physically wrong with them. We agreed they weren't acting like themselves. We made a plan to retire to our room early, as soon as dinner was finished, and then to leave first thing in the morning. I couldn't convince James to leave right at that moment. He thought it would be rude to go, but at the same time, I felt a sense of urgency to get out of there. The casserole was delicious, but it was difficult to enjoy. We wiped down their dining room table and ate in silence as James's parents stood overlooking their backyard from the sliding glass door. I realized while we were eating that I hadn't witnessed either of them sitting down. They had been standing the entire time I had interacted with them. We turned in early as planned and James and I began to whisper about all the behavior we'd been observing. I really wanted to leave he insisted we go first thing in the morning. Eventually, I fell asleep, though it was very difficult at first. Then in the middle of the night, I was awoken by the sound of shoes running on the hardwood floors outside of our bedroom. I jolted up and looked at James, who had done the same thing. The running would begin at the living room end of the house and go down the hall, past our bedroom door, and end in front of his parents' room at the other end of the house. Then it would stop for a moment and resume again in the opposite direction. In all the time I had known James and his parents, I had never seen them run. James looked at me with a panic in his eyes and whispered, What the hell is going on? We both stood up, but still didn't quite know what action to take. James stepped closer to the bedroom door and placed his ear against it. As the pattern of running continued, he flinched as the noise grew loudest right outside our door. Back and forth, someone was running, and they were running fast. With his eyes wide open, he turned to look at me, and then took one step away from the door. He hit just the right spot when he stepped to make a loud creaking sound in the wood floor of our bedroom. That's when the running stopped. Slow footsteps could be heard approaching, and the shadows of two feet could be seen in the space underneath the door. Whoever was doing the running stood still facing our door. They didn't knock or speak. They just stood there while James and I were paralyzed in fear. As I was looking at James, his gaze fixated over my shoulder and his eyes grew wider. As I turned around I could see a silhouette of a person standing outside in the backyard in front of our window. The blinds were closed, but with our bedroom lights off and the brightness of the moonlight, I could make out Tom's shadow. He was swaying from side to side without taking steps, but in a rhythmic motion that seemed unnatural. As I looked down toward the shadows of who I assumed would be Eileen's feet, I could tell she was making similar movements as the shadows danced in a subtle side-to-side motion. James and I didn't move or make a noise for what seemed like an eternity. And then all of a sudden, Tom's shadow slowly moved away from the window. At the exact same time, we watched the shadows of Eileen's feet move away from the bedroom door and walk toward the living room. As the footsteps receded, we heard the sliding glass door open, and then close, and all was silent again. I was pretty sure they were both outside. James and I discussed leaving right then and there, but we were actually afraid to leave the room. We agreed it would be best to set out in the morning, and with any luck, his parents would be out on a walk again, or wherever they had been going during the day. We were hoping to avoid the awkward goodbye and having to come up with a reason for leaving early, though I had my suspicions that Tom and Eileen wouldn't be concerned about it. I had drifted to sleep and sprung awake just after 3am thinking I heard a woman scream. As my eyes tried to focus, I looked over at James who was sound asleep. I thought perhaps I had been having a nightmare. Still, I sat up in bed and decided I wanted to look out at the backyard. I made an effort to slowly split the blinds just enough for me to peer out and get a glance. As I scanned back and forth. I didn't see anyone at all, but then my eyes were drawn to the far right. I could have sworn I saw one of the doors to the shed being pulled shut from inside. I blinked and then stared for a few moments, and then considered my eyes maybe had been deceiving me, or that I was still possibly dreaming. So I laid down and went back to sleep. When I woke up, it was just after 6 a.m., and James was already awake and packing our belongings. He had been sticking to the plan. We weren't going to shower or brush our teeth. We were just going to pack our stuff and leave as soon as there was enough light to see the road. I got out of bed and, without speaking, began to help James with the packing. When we were both ready, we picked up our bags, and James slowly turned the knob to our bedroom door and cracked it in order to see if anyone was visible outside. Then he opened it fully, and tried taking some quiet steps toward the living room. But that old creaky floor made it nearly impossible. Still, there were no signs of his parents. We managed to get outside of the house and loaded our car, and began driving down the long dirt road leading to the main highway. As we neared the only other house on that road, Claire's house, a middle-aged man stood out in the road and waved us down. James stopped the car and got out, then I followed. The man was distraught and had been crying. He was rambling, saying incomplete sentences with phrases like, Where could she be? And, I just don't know what happened. James tried to calm him down and asked him what was going on. The man said, My wife. She never came home last night. I need to find her. James started asking what she looked like. He was describing Claire. That's when I said, Oh, yes, I saw her yesterday afternoon. She brought us a casserole. The man looked at me angrily and said, What the hell happened to her? She never came home. He started aggressively walking around to my side of the car, and I decided to get in the car and lock my door. James grabbed the man by his shirt from behind and said, she left, sir. She gave us some food and left. The man's face got beat red as he turned toward James and pulled a long hunting knife from his pocket. He held it up to James's face and then grabbed the front of his shirt so he couldn't walk away and said, But she went back. I got out of the car and pleaded with the man. I told him, Yes, she was going to come back and bring us more food, but she never did. Please, let him go. The man began looking around in contemplation and said, Why would she bring more food? I explained. "James's parents lived there and she thought we needed more. Then the man placed the tip of his knife so it was touching James's throat, then let go of his shirt with his other hand and reached into James's back pocket to pull out his wallet. After pulling out his driver's license... He tapped the dull side of his knife against James's cheek and said, James Monroe, I'm going to hold on to this for now. I suggest you stay close by until I'm ready to give it back to you. James, holding both of his hands up, said, Okay, keep it. The man put his knife away and tapped James on the forehead with his driver's license. Then he walked up the road toward Tom and Eileen's house. We decided to leave at that point and we weren't planning on going back. A couple hours of driving later, we had discussed what had happened and theories about what could be going on with James's parents when James received a phone call in his cell. Caller ID said it was Tom. I could hear Tom's voice in their entire conversation, which was confusing to say the least. Tom had been asking where we were and that they were expecting us, but hadn't heard from us, and were getting worried. Of course, James was explaining that we just left the house. What Tom said over the phone next was unexpected. He said there must have been some misunderstanding, and that they had closed escrow on the home, but still hadn't moved there yet. When James had asked for the new address, Tom thought James was simply offering to help with the move, and was coordinating to help load the moving truck. Tom said he took a lot of extra time, but did most of it himself, and they were on their way to the house at this very moment. James didn't tell Tom about any of the events that occurred at the new house. He found that his parents were nearly there with the moving truck and decided to turn the car around and go back to meet them there out of concern for their safety. When we arrived two hours later, there were police cars in front of the house. Two officers were questioning his parents by the front door of the home. There were other officers speaking to the man with the knife at the end of the driveway. When the man saw us, he quickly pointed us out to the officers, and one of them approached us as we parked. We got out of the car, and the officer began asking us questions. As James answered, I could see two other officers putting caution tape in a perimeter around the shed in the backyard, which you could see a portion of from the driveway. The officer, after much questioning, said they found who they believed to be the man's wife, Claire, in the shed. The flesh had been stripped clean from the bones. Next to her laid a broken casserole dish full of food that hadn't been touched. Whatever happened, they believed some animal had gotten to her, but for some reason they could not explain, chose to eat her and left the food in the dish alone. Feels good to get back in the swing of things with these bonus episodes, although I have to admit, Anderson taking the reins for a while has provided me with a much needed break and the ability to focus on other things like finding Chris. It's only in moments like these where I've run into a dead end that I need a distraction for the moment to clear my head. And who knows, maybe something in the papers will help to give me some clues to help find him. I just want to say thank you for your continued support of the show and for your patience as I focus on trying to figure things out. Thank you and stay safe out there.